This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics. And the big news out of Queen's Park this week is the Ford government's three-step plan to expand surgeries and some additional services at private health care clinics in an effort to address the backlogs. The plan will begin with cataract surgeries in Kitchener, Waterloo, Ottawa, and Windsor. We'll, uh, we will also look at a demand from all the premiers for Ottawa to reform bail. This as the suspects in the killing of Constable Gregor Pershala appear in court. And the man charged with first degree murder in his death was out on bail and also had a lifetime ban on owning firearms prior to allegedly killing the cop. But what's Let's start with what has been a very mixed response to the Ford plan on the use of private clinics. Some of the reaction does seem to break down on ideological lines. Both the NDP and the Liberals at Queen's Park are opposed. And we're starting to hear from hospital CEOs who are cautiously optimistic, with the caveat that the rollout has to be monitored carefully to make sure there are no unintended consequences. We'll hear from one of those later in the show. In the meantime, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome Janet Ecker, former Ontario PC MPP and former finance minister, Peggy Nash, former NDP MPP for Parkdale High Park, and George Smitherman, former Ontario Liberal MPP, former health minister and former deputy premier. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Hi, Linda. How are you? Well, let us begin with George Smitherman. You were a former health minister. So what is your take on what was announced yesterday? Well, firstly, for those that say there's no room for governments to reform within the constraints of the Canada Health Act, here is evidence that you can, as long as your model is not allowing people to jump the queue with a credit card. So even though people will say that's an ideologue, you know, a feature of this, it is actually not. And there's law that protects against it. The cataract expansion is pretty natural in a sense that ophthalmologists providing non-funded services are already well established in the community. Certainly, I had the same alternatives available to me when I was a health minister the Liberal government decided that we should expand access to cataracts, which we did aggressively, within the hospital domain and with the Kensington not-for-profit clinic in Toronto that I imagine quite a few of your listeners have had an opportunity to avail themselves of. Uh, My impression was that, I mean, I don't even know of people who got cataract surgery in a hospital setting. So uh, are you saying that in Toronto it was only at this nonprofit uh, that it was available? Well, I'm not sure that that's the only place it was available, but certainly what you saw at the Kensington Clinic, which is down there on College Street and is a remnant asset of the old doctor's hospital for old timers that can remember that, Uh, There you had a significant cluster of all the ophthalmologists operating with the University of Toronto. So what we did there, or what was done there, was to support the funding of additional cataract surgeries in a not-for-profit environment that clustered many, many, many ophthalmologists within the University of Toronto training model. And I think that's a really winning proposition that allows for healthcare expansion to occur, but where there isn't the profit motive necessarily brought to bear within it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think that you get cataract surgery now at some of these private clinics already, but I guess we'll have to check that. Uh, Janet Ecker, what is your take on this? I think it's a good move. Obviously, um, the devil will be in the details. Like any government uh, program, it must be executed appropriately. But I think it is time to start moving forward on things that are working in other provinces and other countries. Going around telling Ontarians that they're paying for this great health care system, when is COVID proved, it's got a lot of things that need fixing. I mean, it's not a sustainable position. And so what the government is doing is rolling out a program that is going to help in part. I mean, this is only part of what they're doing and what they need to do uh, in terms of some of the backlogs. And there are 900 independent health facilities out there now, nonprofit and profit. Um, they're all regulated under the independent health facilities legislation. The doctors and nurses in those clinics are regulated under the College of Nurses and the College of Physicians. And so this isn't some big plot uh, to turn the system into some private sector system. It isn't. Ontarians don't want that. The government doesn't want that. We're going to continue to pay with our OHIP card, as we should, for insured services. Um, and, and I think it's a good move. So hopefully... It'll get rolled out well and rolled out appropriately, and it can help ease some of the pressure uh, off our hospitals so that, like, I mean, we've got surgeons who are sitting in hospitals now, um, you know, who uh, can do more surgery, more complicated surgery, if we can get some of the other procedures, like cataract uh, and some of the things that have been mentioned, uh, into a clinic setting where they can be done safely and with good quality care. Peggy Nash, yesterday Marit Stiles, the Ontario NDP leader, said that uh, history shows us that uh, uh, adding services like this increases wait times and doesn't cut them back. And also there's a big caution on the cannibalizing of staff. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, let me say Libby, Janet, George, great to hear you, at oh. least. It's been a long time. Um, I am indeed a recovering politician, so it's great to be here. Um, Thank you. Uh, <laughs> there, there are lots of reassurances right now. I want to add a note of, of caution to all of this. There is no question that people are frustrated beyond belief with the current situation in our health care. Um, I know not that long ago, my, my mom had cataract surgery in the hospital, but I mean, the wait times today are ridiculous. Anybody who has had to suffer through these horrendous emergency room waits, it's, it's really completely unacceptable. Part of this might be temporary given COVID, the, the backlog of, of need for surgeries, the lack of, of exposure to respiratory diseases that complicated uh, illness, especially over the holidays. But, you know, it's been said before that uh, when you have a crisis, uh, there, that's when solutions get implemented that aren't necessarily helpful. And while, you know, if somebody's desperate to get a cataract operation, I can see they're saying, listen, I don't care where I get it. I just want to get it. And if my OHIP card pays for it, I'm happy with that. But let me just offer another scenario. If these private clinics and, you know, private isn't always better. We've seen that with long-term care where more people died in the private system. But let's say these private clinics offer other services where you can pay additional money uh, for, for, for different kinds of treatments. And let's say I'm an ophthalmologist, and yes, I could, or, or I'm a, a surgeon of different kinds. I can, I can stay in the public system, but I can make more money if I go into, yes, doing some publicly covered services, but doing these additional services do we run the risk of losing some of our, our key people, our top people, because they are attracted to, uh, frankly, a more lucrative payment system in the private sector? I'll just say one okay. more thing. Uh, well, okay, okay. wait, wait, wait. Let, let's, uh, let's have a response to that. And I've, I've heard varying solutions to that where there's a requirement to work 
in the hospital system uh, a certain amount. Uh, go ahead, Janet. I think it was you that wanted to jump in. Yeah, yeah. And, and Peggy, I've had op- I've had surgery on my eyes in a hospital. My doctor paid by OHEP. I paid by you know with my health card, right? I had every a whole bunch of tests. I had to pay for it. It was fifty bucks for one. It was ninety bucks for another one. I got asked if I wanted to have a better quality lens on the on the other surgery I had. Uh, you know, it, it was more expensive. I could pay for that, or I could get the OHIP covered. Oh, that's in a publicly funded hospital today. So to somehow say that we're going to be ruining healthcare with these clinics is just not true. There are 900 clinics out there now. Libby. They're yes. working well. They're oh, regulated. Oh, okay. Why are Libby. we getting upset about adding more? And it's not just cataract. I mean, think of the people suffering from hip and knee problems who are on waiting lists. Okay, I mean, wait, wait, wait. Just, let, let, let okay, people like, let's keep this conversation rolling. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody I, has a point of view. George, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that uh, Janet's just made the differentiation or the leap to the hips and knees because I think actually the cataract um, in a private clinic environment where there's so much private eye work already done means that it's a relatively easier business case to make. We should be careful, and I'd be interested, Libby, if you raise this with your CEO who's coming on later, to differentiate hips and knees and to begin to characterize those as minor surgery. Well, exactly. Exactly. You know what? When I heard, I have to say, when I heard Doug Ford refer to this as a no-brainer, that was scary. <laughs> and I think that the issue of is the public health care system going to be expected for free to provide the backup coverage in the event of an event that occurs in a private clinic related to anesthesiology or some other relatively more significant risk? So I think just that would be one caution that we looked at very deeply when we were considering these very options. And I saw hips and knees start to be referred to as minor and to the very best of my knowledge, that's not a proper characterization. And we should be careful not to expect the public sector to provide free backup for a for-profit model. And the other issue we should carefully look at is what is the government's plan to compensate those independent clinics, if at all, for their capital investments. When you look at the devils in the details, those are a couple of areas I'd be very keen to watch. Well, I mean, it's interesting because when it comes to the eye surgery, a lot of these private clinics that already do other stuff, well, they already have equipment, but yes. but the government is looking for proposals in these three places where it's going to start. And again, uh, the capital investments are not insignificant. Uh, uh, Peggy, I mean, I, I guess that's taken a burden off the public system for paying for that. Well, again, I would just argue it can be a very slippery slope. Uh, right now, I was about to say earlier, my, my husband was just down at TGH. He saw a heart specialist. And, uh, you know, he's a re- he was born in the U.S., and I think, oh, my God, if he was there, would would he would he have access to the, this kind of care? Um, so uh, it, it it can be a slippery slope. Who gets care? But I will say that today, you know, the failure of so many of our other systems, whether it's housing, um, uh, substance abuse, uh, food security, these things end up in our emergency departments and over. I don't want to say overburden, but stress our healthcare system. I heard an emergency room doctor saying they get hundreds of repeat visits from people because they don't have other places to go, other systems of support. So as, as, um, George knows this, as a former health minister, these are interconnected, very complicated, and it sounds appealing to have a quick fix. Like, well, just, we'll let the private sector do this thing, and it'll be fine. I argue it can be a slippery slope, and you can't just put a Band-Aid on what has become a societal failure in terms of helping 
people who are extremely vulnerable. And I see it every day here in the city of Toronto. Right. Um, you're talking about uh, there There are two things at play here, an extremely vulnerable population, but this is kind of regular folks. I mean, I'm told that when it comes to cataracts, it's not if you're going to need them, it is when you are going to need them. None uh, of us getting younger. <laughs> uh, uh, Janet, do you have a view about the, one of the cautions is you said that you were upsold even in the hospital. And I've heard lots of people um, agonize about this. It also depends how you're upsold. And the minister said, well, as long as they are offered the OHIP option, there's no problem. We've long since sanctioned that. We have. As long as the standard of equipment was high enough. Sorry to interject. Okay, wait. Yeah. So first Janice, then George. There are, listen, I mean, there like, and there's, there's services like MedCamp, for example, where you pay an annual fee and, and it, you know, to a lot of companies pay for their executives to get healthcare through there. So, I mean, to somehow, you know, pretend that, that we've got this pure system, it's been a blend of public private. We need to make sure that quality uh, rules are in place. And as I said, the Independent Health Facilities Act is legislation that's been around for years. All three-party governments have had that and have had clinics operating under it. And again, we're talking about paying with your OHIP card here, uh, not your credit card. And I don't think it's the beginning of the end of the system. But the other problem, too, and and by the way, uh, George, um, there are knee and hip that they're doing almost on a day surgery basis. You're right that not all of that surgery is simple, but some of it is, and it's done on a day basis. Um, so you can do some of it in clinics with the proper quality controls in place. Absolutely, I get that. But the thing that we've got to remember here is Canada's healthcare system is no longer as good as it used to be. We've got great people out there in the system, but it's not doing the job. We are spending more money than other G- G7 whatever countries, we're getting better, worse outcomes. So we're at the top in terms of spending. We're near the bottom in terms of quality outcomes. So we have to, and, and COVID proved it. We've got to make some fundamental changes here. And getting hung up on ideology is not going to help our patients out there. The government, and again, this is not a quick fix. Um, Peggy, I wish it was. There are no quick fixes, as we all know. And the government has done a series of things. They've, you know, increased spending in healthcare overall. They've increased procedures in hospitals. They're working to try and get more doctors and more nurses because the answer here is not to not have clinics. The answer here is to get more staff in general. You know, private, sec- uh, private, uh, sorry, um, uh, family doctors, uh, nurses, all of that. We need all of them, and the government is trying to take steps to increase the supply. So, in terms of staff, because not having independent clinics is not going to solve the problem. In, in hospitals in terms of staffing, what we need are, are more staff overall to make sure that we're cleaning up this backlog. So I think it's a step in the right direction. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to solve everything, but it's keeping, and again, as George made a really important point at the beginning of this, the Canada Health Act is still in place and is still governing this province as it does all the other provinces where these kinds of clinics are much, much, much more uh, out there more than clinics here in Ontario. So we're way behind some of our provinces. And no one is saying BC, for example, is providing worse care, you know, than Ontario. Oh, um, they've had they've had all kinds of issues, um, uh, you know, in the big court case in BC. George, uh, you were going to say something. Yeah. Well, firstly, I, I, I don't really find Peggy to be too ideological, but I do find you a little bit revved up, Janet. So I hope we get a chance to, uh, to uh, be together in person. I, I would say that on the point about staffing, which you've just made, uh, this government's got a really terrible track record with respect to staffing. They chased away so many doctors during COVID by not finding a vital role for them. And their treatment of nurses with Bill 124 sets our province back against every other province every single day. So I don't, I'm out of the partisan game, I think a bit more than you maybe, but really they don't have a great record there. That's why actually the staffing issues on the short term are nothing because there's so many disaffected healthcare workers in a certain sense. Ford liberated them to look for other alternatives 
not to mention the very many healthcare workers that have been separated from employment because of COVID policies that they just weren't aligned with. So I don't see that as a huge issue. On the independent health facilities issue and the point that I made before about capital, those IHFs always come back looking for money. Even if they don't expect it out of the gate, they have a pattern of coming back looking for capital investment for subsequent technologies. So I think that's one of the places, like I said, to watch in the details about how all of this emerges going forward. Okay, B, I have to get to calls, which are starting to back up, but uh, there's one thing I do want to ask. Uh, The health minister was asked whether the private clinics and the hospitals are going to be paid the same for the same procedure, and it was a kind of uh, fudgerama answer saying that hospitals get uh, all kinds of different envelopes in funding, So, um, and while the, the clinics are just going to get it per procedure. So does anybody know if uh, the model is that they will get paid more, or is it, you know, kind of like some of our uh, cable and phone packages where you can't, you can't contrast and compare? Well, you certainly can. I don't know for sure whether they're going to get paid more, but I think that there is going to be, as I said earlier, the enticement that they could earn more based on Uh, in essence, the upselling, you know, additional services. I mean, the Auditor General reported that, um, that, that for profit corporations tend to want to sell you more. Uh, they have to make money and they're going to want to attract staff. And I, I completely agree with George's point that, uh, staff have not been treated particularly well. Sometimes, uh, just through no fault of the government, even because of the stresses of COVID, but yes, because of the wage restraints. And I think that the, because people have, you know, walked out of the, the public system, maybe they are looking for alternatives. And I think that's a sad reflection on the most prized, uh, public program that we have in Canada that we can't treat people appropriately when we call them heroes during the pandemic. Okay, well, that's uh, that's a whole other uh, conversation. George, do you have anything to say about the uh, payment part? Well, I think actually there should be a clear-cut yes or no answer, because if I'm a health minister and I have money to spend on 25,000 or whatever incremental cataract surgeries, and the public system is saying to me, hey, we can expand to do these cataract surgeries on that incremental basis, and I pay the private sector more, then what's, you know, what's up with that? Because I'm certain well, we don't that the know public... That, George. We don't know We that. don't. It's true. Well, we don't. We should, the health minister should just, we, could, we should just know that. Let's have, a tr- let's have transparency. That's my point. Well, the, yeah, but I, I got to face those choices. Though, one of the challenges, George. Is the that they don't want to be know. transparent. <laughs> It is, you know, absolutely, it has to be transparent. But hospitals don't get paid on a per-procedure basis, right? So it, it is, they're going to have to find out, because it's a valid point, they're going to have to make sure they've got apples-to-apples comparisons when they're paying the independent health facilities. Um, well, I got the Kensington I got the Kensington Clinic as my public head-to-head. It's not a hospital. It doesn't have a core hospital budget. It does that work. So there are comparisons. She knows oh, yeah. whether she's paying more or not. I decided that spending those incremental dollars within the public health care system was the place to buy change to get everybody, for instance, to hit their marks and start their surgeries at 9 o'clock when they were scheduled and a whole bunch of other mechanical issues. If they decided to spend more per incremental surgery outside of the public health care system, What's that telling us? Well, we don't we don't know that, and it would be a good thing if uh, someone would figure it out. I have a hunch the health minister isn't that interested. In, right. In, but if uh, the answer was peace. less, she would have said less. Surely, the goodness she'd have bragged that to the moon. So well, we can assume, they, George. But you, the hospitals um, it, that one of the pieces of work that will have to be done absolutely is how the cost structure is going to work for these clinics. And remember, some of these clinics could be nonprofit. 
you know, right? Because they talked about, but you know, they're they're going to be uh, agnostic on whether it's a private sector or a public sector uh, organization offering the clinic, as they should be, because it shouldn't be ideological. It should be about who can meet the price, who's giving us good quality for a decent price for the taxpayers to get the, the waiting list down. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day here. And yeah, but okay, if, wait, I had, wait, if I had incremental, whoa. if I had incremental great quality available for a hundred dollars less a surgery, building on the back of my public health care system on cataracts, that surely is not constraining the nurse workforce very much. Then why did I choose to pay more to create something new and different? Okay, That's an we don't... ideological basis for their decision. They wanted to do it. Okay, yeah. wait. Whoa, whoa. I've got to take some calls from the audience out there. Okay. Uh, so uh, very quickly, Jody in Toronto. Hi, Jody. Hi, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. Well, I appreciate all the comments that are being made on your program today. The bottom line is we cannot continue the way we are. Even before the pandemic, Canadians and we in Ontario were not getting adequate or acceptable uh, medical care. Even with the uh, decrease in uh, spending and this and that and whatever, we're still not getting the health care that we need. With the increase in uh, population and we're told that there is going to be another increase. So do you think, uh, cut, cutting to the chase, Jody, you think this is a good thing? We have to do something, Libby. We have to do something. We can't go on the way we are. Okay, let's working. take a quick call from Murray in Malton. Hi, Murray. Hi, Libby. Great show today. Thanks. Uh, uh, my, my question is, uh, on previous shows that you had, you were talking about uh, doctors and nurses not wanting to get into profession because of burnout. Wouldn't this help that? Um, possibly, uh, depending on the model on the, on the one hand, it might help. On the other hand, it might cannibalize staff that are needed for other things. Thanks for your call, Murray. Um, I can see that we're probably going a little over time here. Uh, this has been a very obviously, uh, passionate and lively conversation. I'm going to go around the virtual table one at a time, please. And, um, I just want to know what you want to leave us with, starting with Peggy. 20 seconds each, please. Well, I think our, our most prized public social program needs to be adequately supported. Uh, our population is growing. Our population is aging. We need to invest in publicly delivered health care, and we shouldn't be chipping away at the edges. And we can't dump other social programs, inadequate housing, inadequate mental health, inadequate substance abuse. We can't just load that onto the health care system and close our eyes. It's, it's a holistic approach. And we need to treat healthcare staff from the cleaners right through to doctors and specialists. We need to treat them fairly with fair wage increases and value the work that they do. Okay. Janet, 20 seconds. Yeah, Peggy's right about the need. And I think this is one step that the government is taking to try and meet that need. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of details they're going to have to answer for transparency and quality. That is fair for uh, all of us out here to expect that of the government. But there are negotiations for pay increases going on. Bill 124 was time-limited. Um, and I think the government needs to continue its efforts to try and expand the number of staff, whether it's family docs, nurses, whatever. We need more, and and uh, we need steps to do that. So I think it's a step in the right direction. Not uh, the only answer, but a step in the right direction. George, last 20 seconds to you. I think transparency is our friend. However, involvement of private sector often creates the grounds for not being transparent due to competitive conditions. I think that's likely to be a challenge going forward. And I would say that for my time, at least, I believe strenuously that a public health care system owes a clear accounting of wait times realities to the people that own the healthcare system. And it saddens me greatly that the efforts that we made at registering real wait times and then working against the reality of those has 
given way has gone away and that we don't have transparency on those things. Okay, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. Thank you so much, George Smitherman, Peggy Nash, and Janet Ecker. Very lively. Thank you. Okay, we're taking a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to a hospital CEO in a city that is getting one of these, as well as a, a director of ophthalmology. We'll have that when we return. And I may be able to take some of the calls from uh, the people who are waiting to weigh in on this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As we mentioned earlier, hospital CEOs seem to be cautiously optimistic about the plan to conduct some of these surgeries, cataract surgeries in private clinics. And some, like David Moucher, CEO of Windsor Regional Hospital, are more enthusiastic than that. Now, Windsor is one of the initial sites of the rollout, and now I would like to welcome David Moucher and Dr. Fuad Taifur, who is uh, the head of ophthalmology at the hospital and also a co-owner of the Windsor Surgical Center, where cataract surgeries are performed. Welcome and thank you both for joining us. Good afternoon. Thank you for having us. Okay, well, let us begin with David Moucher. Uh, so why do you think that this is such a good thing? Well, uh, number one, it works. So I understand and appreciate those that are concerned or skeptical. What we can share from Windsor is we've been operating under this model for close to three years, and it works. And I'll give you kind of a brief history lesson. Back when COVID started, unfortunately, we could not continue doing cataract surgeries in the hospital. Uh, due to social distancing, et cetera. It was impossible. So we immediately reached out to Dr. Tafer, Dr. Amara, our ophthalmologist, and said, how can we do this possibly outside of the hospital um, or in another center somewhere so we don't have the wait lists uh, start to get out of control? We all know uh, wait list for cataract surgery is longer in the province of Ontario than it should be. And when we're doing approximately at that time 5,000 eyes a year, it wouldn't take long for that wait list to get out of control just for Windsor-Essex alone. So immediately we embarked on a partnership with Dr. Tafer, Dr. Amara, to have the t- cataracts take place outside of the hospital immediately in a safe manner, in the identical process that was taking place within the hospital, the identical charges or lack thereof of charges to the patient that were taking place within the hospital. And we were able to safely move the cataracts outside of the hospital, and they've been operating that way for three years to the point Dr. Taylor and Dr. Amara have uh, built a brand new Windsor Surgical Center or renovated an area that is uh, brand new in the midst of COVID, and now are operating out of that center. We've increased the number of eyes, cataracts we're doing by a thousand a year, so we're approaching six thousand this year. Plus, we're doing retina surgeries there, and from a patient's perspective, it's been very positive. We continually engage the patients; they love it. Um, the wait list is going down, if anything, it's not going up. And but for this, it would have been a real tragic situation in Windsor Essex for cataract. Long story short, is it works. And what the model the province is using used Windsor as an example of the model to be used elsewhere. And and the proof of the pudding. So eating. I'm, I'm a little confused now. Is this just confirming what you already do? Is this going to increase your numbers or what? Yeah, so it's going to allow us to possibly increase capacity as well as there is extra capacity. So we have the ability to do more. So that's number one. Number two, what we were getting approval from from the ministry was pretty much every six months from the start of COVID, we were getting, we had to reapply and get approval to continue it. Uh, the way we were doing this, doing it. So this solidifies that relationship uh, moving forward. 
And number three, it possibly that surgical center has the ability to expand into um, the low acuity orthopedics, um, et cetera, um, that was being proposed by the government. So um, it has that ability, and it's just a matter of working through the process and uh, working with our physician partners. Dr. Tefor, what do you say to those people who argue uh, that it, it could cannibalize staff, uh, that there's a for-profit motive, that people are being upsold, uh, all of those arguments that I'm sure you've heard? What, what, how do you respond to that? First of all, thank you for having us. You're very welcome. We did- thank you for joining us. We had this partnership with the hospital, and I'm actually in the hospital. I'm chief of the section in the hospital, and I do have a practice where we do refractive surgery. Refractive surgery means you can do operation like cataract, so you don't wear glasses for close or far. Because of that, we had the facility to do this surgery before. When COVID hit, simply... Mr. Moshe asked if we can do some cases there, and we have the capacity to do it. We did that all along without really taking any of the patient staff. We have our own staff. We train them ourselves. And some nurses don't like to work in the hospital for personal reasons. Some of them cannot do shift. Some of them want to do part-time, which situation like ours is very attractive to them. And so we never really had to go after staff in the hospital, and I will never do that because we still do surgery in the hospital. So that will be defeating the purpose completely. Going back to the making money out of it, actually, if you look at the number, there is no money out of it, but what the advantage for us, I'm still a surgeon. I still care about my patient. If I have a list of 1,000, 2,000 patients need their surgery, so if my option, either sit in my office and pray to God something will happen and we start to do it or do something about it. And we were able to help and doing it. And money-wise, if you think about me as a surgeon, forget about making money from the center, which you don't in those cases, because really there's nothing the ministry paying any differently from what the hospital for. All that the hospital did, they said, we get that amount of money for the procedure, can you do it this way? We said we can live with it, and that's the way we did it. The advantage, first of all, I'm not sitting home doing nothing. I'm still doing my surgery, still serving my patient, and we are not getting a waitlist to start to be out of control. In the last three years, we did over 15,000 procedures. If we were sitting aside, what the wait time would be now? That's the way I look at it. Um David Moucher, uh, one of the uh, murkier questions uh, when Sylvia Jones was asked, is is the pay for the private centers and for the hospitals going to be the same, uh, you know, was like trying to compare to cell phone bills. Um, so uh, do you know anything about that? I mean, I know that under the your previous situation, you just transferred the funds, but uh, the health ministry says, well, hospitals get paid, not per procedure, blah, blah, blah. So uh, what's the situation there? Yeah, so our relationship right now, as Dr. Tafer outlined, is we just transfer the funds we get from the ministry to Dr. Tafer. Um, the, you know, the future and what it's going to look like is that's part of what the ministry and the government put out is regarding the work that needs to be done on ongoing discussions between the hospitals and the facilities to make sure they're coordinated, to make sure we're working together, we're not working in silos, and that's going to benefit the patients, of course, and also still having, as Dr. Tafer indicated, this relationship where the physicians are still what's called privileged at the hospital, so we're still seeing the more complicated patients at the hospital. Where the funding goes, those are issues that are going to have to be worked out as part of the process. Does it go up? Does it go down? As we we all become more efficient, generally over the years, it's gone down. Um, so we'll have to see um, where that goes, and that's probably why 
you know, there wasn't a definitive answer because those are the issues we're going to have to sort through. Uh, Dr. Tafor, you're saying that you didn't really make any extra money doing this. So I'm wondering, how do you pay for all the capital investments and all the equipment you need? Don't forget to have this equipment before because I do refractive surgery. Okay. And we have a plastic surgeon work with us. So we have that capacity to accommodate this. And all what we did, I have to use the same facility we have. We moved to a new facility because basically I needed a new facility where we were very tight. And the extra capacity we have, we used it for that purpose. But again, I do make money when I do surgery. If I did cataract surgery, I still get paid by the government. I'm not making it on the facility itself. Actually, if you go to facility, we don't even have a payment station. Patient walk in, have surgery, go home. It's exactly like the hospital. There is nothing absolutely different. And two, I'm not the only surgeon there. We have six or seven of us. All of us has to be uh, having privilege in the hospital. And any ophthalmic surgeon with privilege in the hospital can take their patient, do the surgery there, and nobody will ask the patient to pay a penny for that. Okay. Um... Dr. Sorry, David Moucher, uh, I'm going to give you the last 20 seconds. What would you like to leave us with on this? I think um, <clears throat> I know there's some skeptics out in the, you know, across the province that are very concerned where this is going to lead to. What we're trying to get across is we've been operating this in, for the last three years in Windsor, and it works. It works for the benefit of the patients. This is, you know, when they talk about private health care, what you know, people maybe sometimes forget is when we go to a doctor's office in the community, that's a private office. When we go to a diagnostic imaging or a lab in the community, that's private. Um, so this is no different than that uh, process. Um, so, and then one of the last things I want to add, because I hear about this complaint too, or this issue, is people talk about, and Dr. K. Ford can confirm this, is, um, you know, why don't hospitals then operate into the evening and we can do the cataract surgeries into the evening um, hours at the hospital when there's uh, possible OR capacity at the hospital? A couple things to that. Number one is, you know, there are studies that are out there that make it clear doing non-emergency surgeries in the evenings sometimes does not have the best outcomes for patients. And also we have to remember our physicians and nurses, you know, the surgeons, have to have a life and I'll sleep. So, you know, working them 24 uh, seven multiple days a week, isn't the greatest um, to be doing cataract surgeries. And also for the population, say for cataracts to be doing them into the evening, that age group generally, you know, they don't want to be in the hospital uh, late in the evening, having their cataract surgery done. I can tell you, we do that with MRIs, CTs right now, where we try to book people to try to run the CTs and MRIs later into the evening, into the early hours of the morning, and people don't show up. Um, they just avoid their appointment, even though they booked it. So um, we, we can't have that. So uh, this allows it to be operated during daytime hours. Okay. As Dr. Tafor said, the staff appreciate that, as well as the patients, which is our most important person. Okay. Thank you so much, David Moucher and Dr. Fuad Tefour. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, we've got to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this whole issue of upselling. And frankly, you know, when you think about it, it's not just happening in that particular setting. When we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, one of the main objections to the proposal is the upselling that some clients are subjected to and which I've heard many people complain about. Now, it occurs to me that that seems to be everywhere in non-publicly funded services. So at the dentist, at the optometrist, and in recent years, there was even a scandal involving some banks where employees charged that they had to do aggressive upselling to keep their jobs. And in all of this, it is 
vulnerable people who end up hurt. Uh, so I would like to now bring on consumer advocate Ellen Roseman. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Libby. So, uh, you know, what do you think of that? The, the, you know, the objection is because of upselling. We just heard Janet Ecker say that she got the option for an upsold lens in a public hospital. Uh, you know, I know that when I go to the dentist, the upselling is, you know, <laughs> through the roof. <laughs> What's your take? Well, upselling to me, can also be described as offering options, and I see that Sylvia Jones, the health minister, has already said that. If you're offering options, it's one thing, and then the client or the patient has the option of saying yes or no, whether they want them or not. To me, upselling is when the person who is suggesting getting something bigger, better, more expensive, not covered by healthcare, uh, they are getting some kind of a financial incentive to do that and perhaps even a slice of the profits, like a fixed percentage of what they're selling. And that's what they found out was happening in a lot of the private sector areas of the economy. Banking, for sure, you go in to buy a GIC, and someone says, why don't we just sit down here and discuss other options like mutual funds? And banks, as you know, sell mutual funds in their branches. They sell only their own brands of mutual funds, and they make a lot of money out of managing those mutual funds, where a GIC is a much less lucrative product. So that was going on, and the federal government looked into it because they're responsible for the big banks, and they felt that that was unconscionable, and they're trying to get some changes made. Another thing that they might do in banks is tell you, well, you're getting the mortgage. Uh, you might as well get a um, life insurance for your policy in case you die. And people feel that they're sort of pushed into doing it. And if they say, no, I don't really feel like getting life insurance, the bank says, okay, sign a, a, a a waiver, a piece of paper, a waiver saying that we offer you that option and you refused. So if it goes to court later, you know we won't be responsible. So that is very heavy pressure. Telecom is another area, and that again was looked into by the CRTC a few years ago, because when you were calling to do something uh, like uh, uh, just uh, change your phone plan, and then they started selling you all these all these other options. So I don't think in the health system that it's ever fair to have a health person being compensated with commissions for upselling or cross-selling. Right, but Ellen, I, what people are saying, and I'm sure that uh, if if uh, if you're an ophthalmologist selling lenses, I'm sure that you make more from uh, selling the Cadillac option. And I've heard from people is they're told, well, you know, this OHIP model, well, it's it's okay, but if you want really good vision, you should go up to this. Right. And, and, and you'd see that in a pharmacy, too, where a yeah. lot of pharmacists are told to sell the generic drug. And if you don't want that, they might be quite happy to sell you a more expensive drug that absolutely. you pay for. And I mean, I can tell you sort of weird experiences. A number of years ago, my longstanding dentist stopped practice very abruptly because of a health issue. And, uh, you know, it took a long time to find a dentist I trusted. And the stuff was they they won't see a new patient unless you get the big $400 series of x-rays, even if you've just had them. Um, and the techs start upselling you. I mean, it it's, um, you know, what do you say about those things? Well, we live in a society that is motivated by growth growth in business, sales, revenues. And so everybody who works for a company is always looking to show that they are suggesting things that might make the company more money. It probably will help them. If not financially, at least it might help them get a good performance review. Um, I have a story involving um, a few years ago, I had a hip replacement at a downtown hospital. And I'd been waiting for the doctor for a long time. I only met him once briefly, like two years before the surgery. And I was already in the operating room and finally saw him again. And instead of sort of preparing me for the surgery, he started trying to sell me on some kind of machine I could rent after I had the surgery that would help me with recovery. And I knew nothing about it. I'd already been uh, sedated at that point, and I was just about to fall asleep. And he, he didn't have anything on a piece of paper, but he started giving me the website number. It was crazy, you know, yeah. like, it, and I don't think he was... Uh, compensated for it. Maybe he was just thinking that other patients had benefited from it, but it was really bad upselling. And afterward, I found the recovery was really fast and really good, and I wouldn't have needed this machine in any case. So it, it can crop up in situations where 
you know, maybe it's just motivated by sympathy for the patient and hoping to give a good suggestion. So it's up to us as consumers, I guess, because we do trust our doctors and our health practitioners to find out, you know, if they're getting compensated for these suggestions or if they're just doing it out of the goodness of their hearts because they think it might help us. Well, I mean, I think it's obvious that if you're in whatever setting and uh, and if you're selling a higher-end model, then there's going to be more profit in that. If it's a higher-end model of the lens or if it's, uh, uh, you know, it happens in an optometrist's office. You know, you can decide, do you want the super-duper fabulous lens or something a little less good. Uh, and obviously, they make more money on the more expensive thing. Right. And also, if you have a doctor who has some kind of connection to some of these private clinics, uh, maybe, you know, they'll get a referral fee, because that's a common uh, thing in all kinds of businesses. Uh, and uh, you don't want to uh, hear that that is the motivation for that re- recommendation. So if this all goes ahead, maybe we should be looking for some kind of disclosure, mandatory disclosure of extra um, income that they might make aside from OHIP uh, uh, remuneration for these suggestions of options or uh, private clinics. Ellen, uh, the minister said that as long as somebody in one of these uh, private cataract centers is offered the OHIP option, she has no issue with whatever upselling happens. Uh, is that good enough, in your opinion? Um, I don't know. I think that one of the problems is, in the past, uh, like I also had cataract surgery, and I did it at one of these private clinics and paid for it because it was right at the end of COVID or the lockdowns, and I'd been waiting like two and a half years, and my eye had got much worse. And the OHIP clinics were booked up like for months and months ahead of time. And uh, my eye had deteriorated quite a bit during the time when I couldn't do it. So I got an appointment like within two weeks. It was really great service and I was out of there. So, you know, I could afford it at that point. It was really important to me. It meant that I didn't have to wear glasses anymore because my other eye was fine and uh, everything worked. So, you know, I can see the place for private clinics, but I don't think that people should go there with the illusion that uh, everything will be covered under a hip. Maybe you need like a sign in the front saying, you know, there we, we offer the OHIP uh, model, but we also offer different models and it's up to you to decide and uh, check it out very carefully. Hmm. Okay, well, I guess that always is the caveat. Let the yeah. buyer beware. Ellen Roseman, thanks so much. Thanks, Libby. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, people, I'm sorry I didn't uh, get to the rest of the calls. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking about this in the next couple of days, one way or another. So please call back. And right now, that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.